On the Empire Podcast this week, we separate the filmic horse meat from the cinematic 100% beef. There's a topical gag for you. And tackle the likes of Stoker, Arbitrage, Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters, and Broken City. Speaking of the latter, Mr. Mark Wahlberg drops by the pod booth for a chat. And we also talk to Paul Andrew Williams, director of Song for Marion. Plus, as ever, movie news and movie views on the only movie podcast that thinks the title Interim Movie Podcast was, in hindsight, a mistake. The banners and chanting from other movie podcasts has been really damaging. Hello, Paul. I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast where I'm joined once again by three of my esteemed colleagues because believe me, an hour of me talking to myself isn't that compelling. First up, we have Helen O'Hara, a woman so geeky, she recently went out and bought a complete set of the Beatles works produced by George R.R. Martin. Hey, 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 hey. Basically, there are more dragons than Eleanor Rigby, and yeah. Sergeant Pepper dies in the first five minutes. <laughs> he gets his head chopped off. He certainly does. He certainly does. Uh, next up, we have Empire's art house guru, a man for whom it's becoming increasingly hard to write art house intros. So I crowdsourced this week's on Twitter. I, re- I reached out you to people what? on Twitter. I, I, I asked for yeah, I asked for people to send in their their art house <laughs> jokes for you. The selection being mocked by proxy. The selection yeah. wasn't good, Phil, I'll cool. be honest. But the winner was uh-huh. Gene Helpman, helpful by name, helpful by nature, who said, here's a man whose favourite TV show growing up was Rod Hull and Ozu. <laughs> Thanks, Gene. <laughs> it's Phil December. It's, it's good. Amazing, yeah. amazing. You're the man who made a very obscure Rafa Benitez gag in your intro there. Uh, that's not obscure. It's the I number one story. I didn't understand. Yeah. Well, no, no obviously, obviously, obviously there are two people in this room who don't know anything about football, so mm-hmm. obviously we'll pass you by. But it's it's all over Sky Sports News, See, which is where I take all my news from. Rafael so. Benitez was one of Phil's uh, obscure Iranian directors. Wait, yes. wasn't he oh, one of the God. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? He yes. was, yes. yes he, the one with the knives. There you go. This isn't how I saw it. fine, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. a little bit. <sighs> Anyway, last but not least, we have the editor of Empire Online, James Dyer, a man who was described this week, astonishingly not by James Dyer, as, and I quote, one of the most influential film... (laughs) Can't even say it without laughing, can you? (laughs) One of the most influential film journalists in Britain. If you if you count everyone else in Britain as an influential <laughs> film journalist, I think that's entirely accurate. You are influential because All whatever right. you tell me to go see, I will do exactly the opposite. So yeah, that's true. I'm, in, I'm inversely influential. <laughs> yeah. that's, a, that's a power in and of itself. Yes. Also, that has far fewer swear words than, than any of my descriptions of me, so... <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, let's, move, let's start with your questions and your comments uh, that you've been sending in throughout the week. At Lee Alex, uh, who asks, does Anno Dracula, which is Kim Newman, that's his Twitter handle, at Anno Dracula, and yes, Kim is a he, for people who don't know this. Mm-hmm. Uh, genuinely love reviewing the films from the dungeon. This is a reference to Kim's video dungeon column, which is a staple of the magazine. Or uh, was there a bet lost at some point? <laughs> well, obviously we haven't had Kim on the podcast. Uh, we will have him in at some point. I'm sure yes. when he has a book to promote. Um, but so, but I think we can speak for him. He loves it. No, I can, I can actually speak for him because I asked him. Are you his emissary on Earth? Yes. Okay. <laughs> He's declared from on high um, that it's a mission from God. It is. <laughs> He's like the Blues or, Brothers. Or a mission from God. <laughs> if well, we're I mean, to go with the really obscure Terry Pratchett yeah, references. Yeah, well done. Like the Blues Brothers, you know, he, he wears a distinctive hat um, and has a trademark look um, and and is on a mission from God to, you know, review all the direct-to-DVD f- stuff so we don't have to. Yep. And as a former reviews editor of this magazine, mm. uh, it's wonderful that he he does that quite he, frankly looking through some of the things he's been able to review recently I'm, yeah. I'm sure it is a poison chalice arachno quake anyone <laughs> amazing <laughs> dead sushi in which 
<laughs> yeah. California Rolls reanimated and squirt acid at the unsuspecting. Is that, that a sequel been. to Jiro Dream? <laughs> <laughs> Ghost Quake. But I mean, sometimes these films sound better than they are because like Mammoth, for example, that was about a, uh, a you know frozen Ice Age mammoth which was reanimated by aliens and, and went on a killer rampage and had like, I don't know, lasers coming out of its eyes or something. Now, on paper, that sounds amazing. In mm. practice, no. really not. But Kim, Kim loves this stuff. And now and again, you can always have a, you can really uncover a great gem in, in the dungeon. For example, Brad Anderson's uh, Session 9. Has anyone ever seen that? Really creepy horror film with Peter Mullen and uh, and David Caruso. And there was a really very really f- creepy. There was a very funny one last year with uh, Josh Hutcherson. I think it was Detention. It was called. Okay. Um, which kind of multi-dimensional weird time travel space thing. Mm. And that's in that's, high school. That's also pointing out that Kim has seen more films than all of us put together. Has forgotten more about film than we will ever know. And is I think the right man for the job. And also, does he does he actually review from a dungeon? No, he doesn't, because Kim's a phenomenally successful writer in his own right. He reviews him from his incredibly <laughs> lavish flat in London. So there we go. And the last question this week comes from at Popkowitz, uh, who asks, "What's your favourite scene when someone breaks the fourth wall?" Oh, favourite was uh, spelt in the American way, so it must be an American or, or an illiterate. There is that. Probably an American. That's probably uh, yeah. Uh, what's your favourite scene when someone breaks the fourth wall? Helen, explain the concept of the fourth wall. Uh, the fourth wall is the wall between the audience and the characters on screen, so they're not supposed to talk directly at us because that would mean that they know that we exist. Correct. And are not real. Yes. So um, there are um, many good examples. There was uh, a bit in, I believe, Gremlins 2, for example, oh, where yeah. the, the film burnt, and I think Hulk Hogan came out and fought some Gremlins and got it back, yes, got indeed. the film back and on track. And it's different on video where it all goes it fuzzy. Yeah. yeah. John Wayne. It's John um, Wayne on, uh, on video. On the video version. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Ferris Bueller talks directly to the audience uh, He does. I, I've always got a soft spot for that. I yeah. like that. I think it works well. Um, but then there's there's more sort of slightly sort of oblique references. Like my, I don't know if it's my favourite, I really like Honor Majesty's Secret Service, uh, where you know the bit where he picks up Dinah Rick Shoe at the very beginning off the beach and he says that this never happened to the other fella. Mm, no, that's which is, yeah, yeah. yeah. he fights the guys. Yeah. yeah. They, 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 like they pop up in unusual places. Um, I was watching The Treasure of Sierra Madre the other day and Walter Houston, John Houston's dad, is the scene where he's being lavished with all this uh, love and, and luxury by the uh, Mexican villagers and he just sort of looks at the camera and gives you a glance of like, look how lucky I am. <laughs> and, it, you know, you don't expect that in a film like that. But you do perhaps in a film like Blazing Saddles, which is my mm. favourite, yeah. where just the whole film just kind of un- unravels well, amazingly. Sometimes it's done for humour, sometimes it's done as a kind of nod. And things like, I don't, if anyone's seen House of Cards, yeah. uh, it mm. obviously uses it as a major narrative device all the way through. And it's quite jarring at first, but actually works very well. I think it's very good. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I loved it. Which, of course, was used in the uh, UK original. It was, yeah. Uh, Depends on how, how do we define um, the breaking the fourth wall? I mean, I mean, I think it's, like, it's the I point mean, where you acknowledge that it's a film, isn't it? Really, yeah, it's, right. You're acknowledging so when, that it's not when the celluloid burns in like Persona. Mm-hmm. Okay, once again. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. Go on. <laughs> that that's breaking. You know, Bergman's breaking the fourth wall in that instance. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Not so, to be confused with breaking the fifth wall. It's a fifth wall. Which, yes, there is. There was at one point, I believe it was, it's the wall between, if I remember correctly, the critic and the viewer. It's all a bit up its own arse. But what? yes, that is a thing that got bandied around at one point, the fifth wall. You can't have a fifth wall. You can? Structurally, that's very poor. It's structurally unsound. I will grant you that. Another classic Much is... Much like a city built on rock and roll. <laughs> Another classic <laughs> is um, Marshall McLuhan's appearance in Annie Hall when yes. he's yes. having the argument in the queue and he just brings him out. Who hasn't um, wanted to do that? I love um, Top Secret... 
Yeah. Where there's a there's a moment where Val Kilmer and Lucy Gutteridge are talking to each other about how improbable the whole plot has been, and she goes, <laughs> "Yes, it's, it all seems like some bad movie." And then they they slowly turn and half glance at the audience, <laughs> and then carry on with the film, uh, which I love. Um, it's wonderful that movie. It's so oh, underrated. Phenomenal movie. Um, little moments that, you know, occur. I love Robert Downey Jr.'s narration in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which at the end starts talking about, "Don't worry, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna have 25 endings like Lord of the Rings." <laughs> so he very very aware that he's narrating the movie. I just love stuff like that. I love little little cheeky little moments. Uh, James, I'm surprised you haven't mentioned Boston Legal. Which was pretty much absolutely built true. On yes, breaking the fourth wall. Oh, it's genius! It's genius. There's the bit when uh, when the new people start and he does the welcome to Boston Legal. There's a bit where they start singing the theme tune before it starts, and then there's the <laughs> really really random bit when a former cast member comes in and and James Spader goes, "Wow, how long's it been?" And he goes, "Oh, we moved to Tuesdays. You went off to do movies, but now here we are." <laughs> and it's just yeah. Oh, it's genius. Absolutely genius. Also, I would say on that note, Community also another show based around breaking the fourth wall in a genius fashion on a quite regular basis. Yeah, have any examples? Uh, well, Abed's entire persona. Yes, um, he, very you true. Know, he, keeps, yeah. he keeps talking about, uh, I thought this would be a really fun episode, but mm. it's turning dark. It, know, it, like is that. it just Abed, though? No, no, it. Jeff does it uh, quite regularly as well. The rest, not so much, but it tends to be those two. See, I'm still on season two, mm. so... I don't know if those are our favourite scenes, but those are the ones that came to mind. If you have any other examples, then please do send them in. And if you have any questions for us, then you can tweet us. We're at Empire Magazine. Please use a hashtag, Empire Podcast, otherwise we won't see it. You can Facebook us. We're Empire Magazine, obviously on there as well. And you can email us at podcast at empireonline.com. And now, an interview! Hurrah! Uh, when he first started out in the movies, Mark Wahlberg was a rapper-turned-actor coasting on the fumes of his previous incarnation as Marky Mark, leader of the fabled Funky Bunch, who, uh, according to Pro- Ancient Prophecy, will save us all. I believe it. I believe it. Um, but no more. And now he's got a string of classic films under his belt, from Three Kings to The Departed. He's got an Oscar nomination. He was a star of last year's huge comedy hit, Ted, and he's back this week as producer of the modern noir Broken City. He dropped into the pod booth to talk about all manner of things with James and Phil. Uh, welcome to the Empire Podcast, Mark Wahlberg. A pleasure to have you, sir. Thank you. Thank you for having me. At the very back of the magazine, we have a, a section called Classic Scene, which, as you might imagine, is a celebration of classic scenes in cinema. And our classic scene of 2012 was a certain scene from Ted, uh, nice. which you'll be familiar with, uh, which is where you rail off a sort of a, an impressive litany of oh. white trash girl's name. How long did it take you to memorize that? A long time. You know, I usually start learning the script about eight weeks before uh, physical production, principal photography. But, you know, that was the hardest dialogue for me to ever learn, just because it's just 57 names that don't mean anything or aren't connected to anything. At one point, I was thinking, well, let me, I'll, take, I'll take a binder, I'll have a name, and then I'll have a picture beside it, so I could use that to visualize. But it was just one of those things where it just took forever. <laughs> and I'm, I'm good with dialogue. I still remember chunks of dialogue from, you know, movies 20 years ago. But uh, it was one of those things where it was just like... I, and I never thought it would make it in the movie because when we talked about originally do it, I would just say Brittany, <laughs> Tiffany, Candace, Sabrina, Reba, Trina. And it would just go on and on. I said, dude, this is going to be a 10-minute long scene. It's never going to make it in the movie. I said, what if we do just do like a game show type of thing where this is something that we do often. We play a guessing game, and I'll just say it as fast as I can. So we'll try to do it in the amount of time where it makes sense because you can't, you can't have a five-minute scene me just saying names. And, you know, we'll think it's funny, but nobody else will. So we did it, and people liked it. It was, it was one of those random things. It was like the fight scene in Ted. I was like, I do not want to do this scene. I just feel ridiculous <laughs> because it's literally me smashing my head off the wall and pretending somebody kicked me in the nuts and it's one of the great scenes of the movie and so you know it really started making me question uh, 
you know, my taste and, and my choices. Big fight scene against the Invisible Bear. Fight scenes, obviously, with boxers in the fighter. And in this movie, you have to take on, like, a giant guy. Yes. Which was the toughest? Well, the giant guy, A, doesn't know it's a movie. And he doesn't know it's all straight. Well, it's crazy because all the fights that I'm in, in the movie, like, uh, whether it be in the beginning of the movie and Staten Island and that kind of alleyway, that was a guy I personally hired to, to, to play that part and I just kicked the shit out of him his name is Big A he's you know, a former Israeli soldier he's been in many movies and you know, the director was like what are we doing here what's going on I said just trust me because you know how many fight scenes do you do where they're choreographed and you're doing all these fast cuts whether it be like a Born Identity style or whatever mm. like Ted so I said you know what just put the cameras there and let us do our thing we did like 10 takes of me just destroying this guy and then we shot the scene with him with the girl kind of dancing on them and rubbing on him. So that was like a consolation for him. He was very happy. <laughs> the the first comedy film really that you appeared in was Date Night, wasn't it? Yeah. You kind of stole the show a little yeah, bit. Yeah, that, that was the kind of warm-up. And I remember um, when we agreed to do it, I had already committed to doing the, the movie with Will and Adam, and then they were kind of pissed. They were like, dude, what are you doing? This is not, you know, we're supposed to do the first one with, with us. And I said, it's just a small thing. Well, he didn't say, they didn't say it to me, but Adam said it to it. We, have, we share the same agent, Nari Manuel. Mm-hmm. And he was like, uh, "No, it's just a little thing, and it's different." And uh, but it was good. To, it was good to do that. I had a good time with Sean, and you know, Steve and Tina were really cool. And I didn't it, like the idea of having my shirt off the whole time, but it's, it's an interesting one yeah. because you are famously short of clothing in that film, and yet yeah. in the credits, Lorraine Crossman, who you've worked with many times, my is wardrobe. credited as your wardrobe assistant. Yes, surely the easiest gig in Hollywood history. <laughs> what was she doing there? Oh God, she's the best. I, you know what? I gotta, I gotta have my people around, and I gotta, you know. They take such good care of me, you know. I, I think about the times when we're out there shooting something in the freezing cold, and she's out there with me, or like I gotta, you know, jump in the ocean. She's there with the warm stuff, and she's the best. Yeah, I call her mama. <laughs> takes there's, good care of me. There's an entourage gag here, but I'm gonna skip over that and go straight into it. The, no the film has been greenlit, which is very exciting. Oh. You must be pretty pleased that that's now oh, moving. Fantastic, fantastic. I, you know, it's one of those things. It's like the fighter and like this movie Broken City you know these are things that you have to will to make happen for whatever reason you know it's like I don't know but we we got it done you know because it wasn't supposed to be a movie and I just kept saying there's going to be a movie and everybody's like what are you talking about and and then people would call Doug and, and call Lev and be like what what's he talking about and then all of a sudden it was like everywhere we went now they're like when's the movie coming where's the movie <laughs> and all of a sudden there's a movie six months after the last episode yes yeah. can you tell us anything well, I could tell you there was one very uninspired thing. They wrote a cameo for me playing myself as a producer of a television show uh, that somebody on the as one of the guys is trying to get apart. But uh, but no, I'm excited because it's getting back to the guys being together. You know, they were all kind of caught up in the relationships with different women and stuff mm. like that. And those are great characters. And you know, but but uh, the guys getting back together is something that I'm excited to see. Have you spoken to Harvey Harvey Weinstein about the Harvey Weingard character in Entourage? And then he said he, sh- he you know you should have at least had him play it. He would have done it better. <laughs> but. Uh, Look, you know, the show is the show. We've had many people. You know, hopefully people are in on the joke and uh, and don't take offense to it. Yeah. Although it was funny because, you know, it's crazy. Uh, I was at the Golden Globes and I saw Jim Cameron and it was right after Avatar. And I was like, dude, man, give me some of that money. <laughs> I, like, I cannot believe that movie made so much money. I said, I, I thought there's no way this guy's going to do it twice. I said when I first saw some of the images and stuff or when I was in New Zealand shooting Lovely Bones with Peter Jackson, he was down there and they've been shooting for like ever and you know, it was like it just this 
unlimited budget. It was just like, there's no way this guy's going to hit it out of the park twice. It's just impossible. So I was telling him that I was like, dude, I didn't think it was, I thought it was going to be a disaster. I said, you got to give me some of that money. I said, you got too much money. He goes, dude, you've been milking me for so long. He said, I did one episode of the show and you mentioned me for fucking four seasons. I was like, you got a point. The a point. I said, I'm not giving you none of my syndication. No. There was a rumor going around the internet that there was going to be a Wahlburgers reality show. Is that there right? Is, yeah, we just shot the pilot. Oh, really? Yeah, we, we, we sold the show to the History Channel. Not HBO. No. No. No, uh, but uh, History Channel is the third biggest cable network in the world, and uh, it's a it's a docu series about building a family business with my mother kind of and my brother Paul at the at the center of it, and Donnie and I kind of you know uh, pulling the strings, and you know we just hired a real CEO to run and build the business. Right. Uh, he he was uh, at Panera Bread, and it's you no, know, it's a serious serious business and a serious thing. It's uh, my brother Paul is an absolute rock star in the kitchen. You know, he's, he's a five-star chef, but all he loves, likes to eat is fast food. Mm. So he's always wanted to have a burger place. And the business is fantastic. I mean, we've had offers to bring them here, Ireland, uh, Dubai, everywhere. But we want to build the business the right way. So we're literally starting in New England, uh, building our second one uh, in another Boston location. And just kind of mushroom from there. Well, speaking of Boston, you'll be back there for TED 2, isn't it, which you're, yeah. which you're going to be shooting? Yeah. I mean, presumably, since the first one is very character-driven, this one will need to be more of a, because obviously the characters are now quite established, more of a sort of story-driven device. I mean, what, what do you yeah, have in mind Yeah, I for think, uh, you know, I talked to Seth a little bit about it when we were preparing to do our thing for the Oscars. And, uh, you know, he, the great thing, look, I've never done a sequel before, and I've always been apprehensive about it, but he, he comes from television. He continues to write character stuff. He's great at it. You know what I mean? I, I, every time I watch an episode of Family Guy, it's something different, something hilarious. And so when he started telling me these ideas, I was just like, dude, I'm, I'm in. Don't worry about it. Let's do it. But uh, what he was also saying, he wants more of John and Ted because those were the moments. Uh, <laughs> so we, yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait, A, to just spend another three months with him because he's such a smart, talented, funny guy, and he's just a nice guy. But, you know, you learn a lot from him, and I'm stealing a bunch of stuff. And, and you're also, I mean, sequel-wise, you've also got Transformers 4, which, sure, I mean, is that the first film you're going to be able to take your kids to see that you've done? Uh, yeah, they saw a little bit. I did this football movie for Disney called Invincible, so yeah. my son saw that, and the boys saw a little bit of the other guys. Um, which they wanted to see more of, but my wife was like, what are you doing? You cannot show them that. It's <laughs> like, all right, well, what are you going to do? And then, uh, yeah, they're really excited about Transformers. Not only do they want to see it, they want to be in it. You know, they watched the other three. Even, and now my wife won't let them watch that anymore because my four-year-old <laughs> said shit the other day. <laughs> and uh, and, and uh, I asked him, I goes, where did you hear that word? He said Transformers. So I was like, uh -oh. that's done. But I'm excited. Michael and I had an amazing experience working together on Pain and Gain. I don't know if seen, you guys have seen the trailer. Yeah. yeah. Are you kidding? Uh, yeah, no, it's no, no. amazing. No, no. The movie is is insane. I mean, I, I think it's like Boogie Nights meets Pulp Fiction meets Fargo. Um, Michael's such a talented guy. You know, he made that movie for $25 million. And then, you know, he was like, hey, you, you want to work together again? I said, absolutely. He goes, well, I got this idea. I set him in. And he told me about it. I was like, you know, it's not very different from... The other three. So, yeah. who do you do? You, cool. Who's your character in Transformers Four? Can you say? I play a man. A man. Good stuff. Who has a child? You, <laughs> you heard it here first. Michael said that um, <laughs> it's going to be smaller. It's going to be smaller than the other ones. It's not going to be smaller than the other ones, is it? It's just not. <laughs> it will. It's going to be just a couple of people in a room talking. It is. Yeah, right. It'll, It'll be like, like Mike Lee films. The little little Transformers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Pain and Gain, the, the trailer, there's a fantastic sequence where you come in and you're really stressed out on the rock says, you know, got to get a pump on, you know, got to do some stuff. As a man who, unlike the two of us, has seen the inside of a gym, I mean, do you, is that you at the end of the day? Do you unwind by hitting some weights? No. No, I like to start my day by working out just because I feel better. I mean, yeah. I, I usually feel a little bit sluggish if I don't do something. Uh, but no, I like to end my day with a glass of red wine. <laughs> oh, nice. Have you and the remote control in my hand. Have you seen... Uh, Pumping Iron, the Arnold Schwarzenegger documentary. We're going to beat him, Dad. <laughs> I've seen that movie, I've got 300 times. You know, those guys are so crazy. What I loved about it, when, I remember when Michael came to me and we talked about it, I said, dude, I was all throughout the 90s, I used to just be at Gold's Gym in Venice with these freaky guys, you know? And it's like, I love this world. I love these guys. They're, no, they're crazy. That's their, <laughs> their whole thing. They're obsessed. And this is this is a true story of some guys that went really yeah. crazy. Uh, so, no, I got Pumping Iron. I, I don't know. I, I must have introduced Pumping Iron to 50 people. We've got time, I think, for uh, about one more question or a couple. I wanted to ask a, a rumor control question. It's one of these famous IMDb things. So, Three Kings, is it true you got David O. Russell to shock you for real during the torture scene? Yes. Is this a thing that he does? Is that why Bradley Cooper looks so sort of harrowed in Silver Linings? No, no, no. I, I, he, didn't, he didn't think it was a good idea. I suggested to do it. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty hardcore. Yeah. And did you also... Did you, do you still have the prosthetic from Boogie Nights? Oh, absolutely. Is it in a case? It, no, it's in a bag in my safe, like a plastic bag. Because the they don't age well, do they, those latex things? They kind of yeah, degrade. I don't really... I haven't really checked on it. How's my restore giant it. penis? But... Um, <laughs> It was one of those things where I just felt like I should keep it. Yeah. I know I haven't kept many props for movies. But uh, that one was a that one was a keeper. That was a keeper and a hider. <laughs> yeah, can't, absolutely. Like, leave that thing out. We should just wrap up with a with Broken going back to Broken City. You work with Russell Crowe in this movie. You're both very passionate sports nuts. Did he try and sell you into some of his Australian rugby codes? Rugby league. He owns a rugby no. league club yeah. out there. No. I we, you know, we we spent a lot of time talking and hanging out, but uh, but sports never came up. Hmm. You know, it was uh, just it was just one of those things. Yeah, but you know, he he was fantastic to work with. You know, it, it's nice to see a guy who's committed and is passionate about his work and the work that will service the movie as a whole. You know, because a lot of guys, you know, they're usually I work with a lot of great actors, and a lot of them are really kind of about their thing, and. Uh, you know, to see a guy who cares about the movie as much as he does about his own part and his own performance was great. And to see how prepared he was, you know, the, w the first day we shot that big confrontation scene and we didn't rehearse, we didn't talk about it. We set two cameras up in both directions and we just started going. And, uh, you know, he had, he only had three weeks of work on the movie, but he had so much dialogue, whether it be the debate with Barry Pepper and, you know, the scene with me in the beginning after he's with the reporter and he's he's hiring recruiting me to uh, to investigate his wife all those things there's just a lot of dialogue and you know to see a guy never flub a line never you know it was good i was like uh somebody out there cares as much as i do it's nice well i think that's that's us running out of time mark Warburg, thank you very much for joining us i gotta tell you this is the best interview i've done the entire junket dude we were just talking about movies. and Thank you very much. Yeah, that's you. what we do like, all day, every day. Hey, I admire your job, my career. <laughs> it's better than it's, working for yeah, me. I would like to, uh, to do something like this. You, you are more than welcome to come, come and join the podcast. Come, come work here. Go on, we can you know, find a place for you. Mark. I'll be in TED too. You can, you know. <laughs> no, you won't. You've got stuff to do. Yeah, you're right. <laughs>
So, yeah, Marky Mark, I missed that one. I was a bit gutted about that. How was he? He was very good. He was. Great value, actually, yes. Yeah. Enjoyed that a lot. Excellent. Thanks for the insight, As James. indeed did he. <laughs> <laughs> uh, movie news time now. Helen. Hello. I bring great news uh, this week of the Jemison Empire Awards. Uh, the nominations have officially been announced. Mm-hmm. I know you wouldn't expect us, of all people, to cover this, but yeah, here we How do we get we this information? Uh, we, basically, many Bothan spies died oh. to bring it to us. Also, it's just been announced this morning. We have we have all the nominations. Uh, best film, the nominees are Django Unchained, The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, The Dark Knight Rises, Skyfall, and Avengers Assemble. There's a tasty lineup. Phil would like to step away from this conversation for, for the next 10 minutes. There are subtitles. There are subtitles, I'm sure, at least one of those movies. I actually resent that. I like those films. Apart from I Hobbits. know. It's only a joke, Phil. Honestly. I resent that. You don't I resent that. The Hobbit's partially in Dwarven, so I can understand That's what you're <laughs> and, and, I mean, you know, up for best British film is Les Miserables, which has a, an accent on it. So, it does. You know, that's mm-hmm. some so kind of comfort. Foreign by default. Pretty much. Mm. Uh, so, you know, it's it's actually looking like a really good year. Um, many nominations for uh, Avengers in some of the major categories. Again, Skyfall's doing well. You, you'd kind of expect both of those. We've got Life of Pi up for Best 3D. Um, best Director this year is, is actually a, a pretty titanic battle. You've got Joss Whedon, Christopher Nolan, Sam Mendes, Quentin Tarantino and Peter Jackson. Interesting. Yeah. Fan favourites, everyone. Don't know who my money is on, on, on that one. Uh some interesting nominations. Uh, good to see Side Series getting his due. Uh, Steve Oram and Alice Lowe, who co-wrote and starred, up for Best Male and Best Female Newcomer. Uh, it's also up for uh, Best British Film, I believe, as well. Uh, yeah, and Best Horror. Okay. Uh, and uh, let me see. What, what's some Best Comedy, then? We've got Ted, Moonrise Kingdom, 21, Jump Street, Silver Lining playbook and the pirates in an adventure with scientists mm. okay that's cool best science fiction fantasy looper avengers assemble the avengers uh prometheus the hobbit an unexpected journey and dread interesting uh best thriller is skyfall argo headhunters oh that's good i like that uh the raid oh brilliant see that uh zero um, dark 30 fantastic yeah. best horror sightseers sinister the woman in black dark shadows and the cabin in the woods uh, and best 3D The Art of 3D presented by Real D uh, Life of Pi The Hobbit An Unexpected Journey Dread 3D uh, The Avengers Prometheus uh, Best British Films interesting as well Dread The Woman in Black Sightseers Les Miserables and uh, Skyfall so yeah, pretty pretty uh, a decent mixture of, of films that the Oscar uh, applauded and, and then uh, commercial hits as well several that they didn't yeah so it's all voted for obviously by you this has been compiled on the basis of your votes and yeah. uh, you then need to vote again we're talking to you she's not you, talking to me listeners. you the listeners you the listeners the British public must now vote again uh, to decide who actually wins uh, so uh, it's all on the website uh, head on over to empireonline.com and uh, forward get your slash vote awards on. 2013 sure. do you have to be British to vote you do not have to be British to vote mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> thank but, goodness but uh, yeah by, by Human. all means by all means Indeed. do vote so the shortlist is out there now so and the, the ceremony is on March 24th and is hosted this year by Ed Byrne yes yeah, stepping Irish into your comedian. shoes he's Step, got well, half of my shoes boots, I, it was me and Lauren Laverne last year 
Okay, so one really, really tall high heel and, yes. and one slightly scruffy they went, Can we have a funny Irishman this year? The, the Irishman you provided last year was not funny, so oh. therefore we want someone better this year. And they got Ed Burns. There we go. Uh, so, Grant, fantastic. So do go to that, www.EmpireOnline, uh, or as uh, Brian Butterfield might say, www.EmpireOnline.com forward slash awards. .com. .com. <laughs> Amazing stuff. Uh, James, what do you got? Um, <clears throat> a news story which, as in keeping with a lot of the news I bring to this podcast, may not in fact be a news story. Um, it almost strikes me as if you don't prepare for this. It's funny, And then isn't you, it? in a panic before we come into the pod booth, <laughs> go, oh, God, what is it? And then yeah. you just jump in the first thing you see. I don't, I don't it's know almost like that. I don't know why it seems that way. <laughs> I don't that's, know why. That's, that's really, really, really odd. Anyway, um, there was a rumour, <laughs> a rumour that someone overheard that James McAvoy might be, uh, might be cast as the crow in the remake of said film. Right. Um, it's interesting. I'm a big fan of actually James O'Barr's uh, graphic novel for this. I like it a lot. Uh, I also very much like Andy Price's film, um, which is nothing like the comic at all, but also good in its own right. This is an odd one because this has been circling. I think it was Stephen Norrington, wasn't it? About 2008, 2009, who well, first mooted. Bradley this Cooper remake. was attached to this pretty, yeah. pretty firmly, wasn't he? He was. And is no longer. And Mark not. Wahlberg was at one point as well, as I recall. Mm-hmm. Uh, Juan Carlos Frenadillo uh, was going to direct That's that. That's an one extraordinary point. mangling of that. <laughs> was it? Yeah. It's I'm all, not going to try it. Anyway. Almost as good as, uh, <laughs> as the uh, Les Misérables <laughs> from uh, Oscar Night. But yes, um, yeah, it's been through lots of different hands. I, 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 I can't imagine why. Maybe because no one really knows what to do with it. I mean, the original has. I mean, it's had mixed reviews, didn't it? Really, let's be honest. Proyas's Crow. I think. Um, I think it's a dreadful film. I really like it. So I disagree with you entirely. I realise I'm increasingly the minority there. It's now seen as a cult classic. It is. It has a cult following. I mean, it's flawed, but then, you know, the main actor did die during production, so you've got to cut them a little bit of slack. It is dwarfed by his notoriety. For yes, that. very much so. But it's fun, but it's a very stylized kind of gothic take on the on the graphic novel, uh, which sort of obviously, for cinematic reasons, amps up the, the action and the violence. Have you ever read the graphic novel? I have not. Um, it's... It's a really, really depressing book. Um, it, yes, there is it, the basic idea of him going around and killing the people who killed um, him and his girlfriend is very much the case, but it's it's not quite the sort of action spectacle that the film is. I mean, it's very much the killings intercut with him essentially moping around, remembering the life with his girlfriend. It's very introspective. It's kind of a study on grief and loss, really. It's uh, um, it's quite um, James O'Barr. I think it came out. Many years after he'd written it, I believe uh, the actual story came about because he, the author, had been drinking and therefore couldn't drive home. And he called his girlfriend and asked her to come and pick him up. And when going to get her car to pick him up, she was hit by a car and killed. And he was obviously devastated by this whole thing. And that was the sort of creative impetus that caused him to write this graphic novel. So it's a very personal thing for him. Um, so and that that the tone of that essentially permeates our graphic novel. I mean, it is it's a very downbeat thing, uh, which you wouldn't know from where it's been on screen. I don't know if any of you have seen the sequels. There was the the Crow City of Angels, which was Vincent Perez, I believe, uh, and that had Iggy Pop in it, I think. And then what was the second one? Uh, the third one was Crow Salvation, which was Eric Mabius, which is the one that had Kirsten Dunst in it. And then there was a th- there was another one, uh, the Crow Wicked Prayer, which was Edward Furlong. So there've been four films, and of course the Stairway to Heaven TV show. So there you go. Lots of crow stuff out there. Right. Okay. So all of we... which takes us back to the fact that let's be honest, James McAvoy is never playing the crow, and this is absolute nonsense. Well, it could he could? I mean, he's a bit of a you know geek. He likes his geek properties. I wouldn't entirely rule him out if it, there was a good script. It, it all comes down to what would he look like in white face paint with the little clown eye things. Uh, a tool is really 
what I think he looked like. Oh, I, don't, I, I just don't see him. I don't see him looking like the crow. You know, I could be, I could be horribly mistaken, but I just, I don't feel it. I don't feel it. But then, you know, hey, Ferret Mabius can do it. Yeah, that's just, when he's in this room. That's the first question any actor asks himself: <laughs> What would I look like? Has Eric, Eric Mabius done it? Yeah, <laughs> because if he can do it, then yeah, I've got a shot. I dressed up as the crow once. Really? Yeah, for a fancy dress party. I've did seen those like, pictures. Yeah, he did really you look did. like a tool? I, I did look like a tool, but I, I thought I thought I pulled it off ish. Kind of okay. Can I we just I rename look, it? I look dreadful. I look dreadful. Okay. Yeah. You can. You, uh, maybe going to hit fancy dress party once as uh, as Hitman from. Yes, the, yes. The popular video game series and less popular <laughs> motion picture series. That's very true. Hitman. Yeah. And you looked pretty good, actually. You had the suit well, and the red bald, tie. So, and you you're know, bald. Yeah, and so I you put a barcode on my head. Put a barcode. Yeah, not a lot was... was yeah, quiet. not a lot of effort went into it. Um, much like this news story. <laughs> <laughs> Two minutes before a fancy dress party. Shit, what am I going to do? I know, I'll go as Hitman. <laughs> I've got the gloves, I've got the garrote. Everything's good. <laughs> but anyway, so none of you have a love for the crow in any of its I quite like the crow. No. Okay, good. Yeah, and, um, um, but I... I I just I do think that um, James McAvoy, if he signed up, if there was a good script, could do quite a good job. I mean, he's he's Macbeth at the moment. He can no, do tragic heroes. Do you know what? I think you're right. Maybe he could play the crow from the graphic novel in a better way, rather yeah. than the you know the Brandon Lee's crow. You see a lot of plays, Helen. You're, I do. You're quite cultured. Have you seen James McAvoy and Macbeth yet? I am going play? in a week and a half to uh-huh. see him. Um, I just saw Helen Mirren in the audience this week. Um, she's terrific if you get the chance if you can get a ticket to that go see it it's amazing she's basically reprising her role as the queen um, plays her over about a 60 year period wonderful well, stuff I would get tickets for her but unfortunately I, I, I can't remortgage my house to buy a theatre ticket mine would like £25 £25 £25 outrageous Phil what have you got I have a story about the youngest ever Oscar nominee, Quivenjane Wallace. Yes. She's going to be Annie in a another film version of the musical Annie. Oh, I feel like I just the sun is going to come out tomorrow. I know. It just makes you just what, go, What's the Onion's oh, take on this? The onion, you don't want to hear <laughs> the Onion's take on this. Um, yeah, this is a film directed by... It's going to be directed by Will Gluck, who was the man behind the... Oh, now I'm intrigued. Very funny Easy A. Yep. Yep. Um, and Will Smith and Jay-Z are driving it to the screen and um, Quivenjane has been cast and there's been rumours that she was going to get this gig. It seems pretty much perfect for her at this point. Yeah. Shows a new um, a new facet to her talents, I guess, yeah. to see if she can, you know, pull, uh, hold, a, hold a tune. I think given the person we're talking about, Quivenjane, can clearly do anything. So it's not so much if she can hold a tune, but when she can hold a tune um, she's she's a formidable young lady little hopefully little can we call her little when, I don't no, know when she not. started to be called little Q from what I gather it was on the red carpet on Oscar night yeah. everyone was referring to her as little Q our favourite no e reporters yeah. Christendom the, the, the e reporters that we idolise we well, she, she didn't um, I don't think she ever really had a strong chance of winning for Beast of the Southern World but she is fantastic in it and she's clearly very talented when she came to talk to us on the podcast last year she was clearly like more focused on you know she loved her schoolwork and just very down to earth um, so she seems you know like she's well equipped to is um, to, to push on with her acting career as well is Will, is Will Smith going to play Daddy Warbucks is that is that yeah. a possibility I'm wondering I don't know it's, 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 I just, I've literally got no idea. No, idea. you're just you making a big noises. Annie fan, Phil. Not really. No, no. 
Okay. You're not going to burst into a rendition no, tomorrow. No, but the, I'm not an Annie fan yet. But I, w- I could but well will be. be. I'm open to it. I'm, there's a maybe in my life. Saying maybe. I know the hard, hard not a life song. Yep. Yeah, I was about to ask: is was that the one that was it? Jay Z that sampled that? Yes, it was. Oh, well, so there that you go. Might be why he's it's got hip hop creds. It mm-hmm. totes does. Mm, massive. <laughs> um, and also, let's not forget that um, Quavenjane is appearing in Steve McQueen's new film, uh-huh. 12, Twelve Years a Slave. So she really has, you know, she's she's. She's busy. Frankly, she's, a busy lady. she's going to be in a position to keep herself in puppy purses for quite some time to come, and I think that's wonderful. Yeah, I did nothing when I was nine. Yeah, I just you feel sat like around an underachiever and now? played on my Commodore Vic Twenty or whatever it was. Who knew back then? Who yeah. grew up to become one of Britain's most influential <laughs> film journalists? Who knew? Can indeed? I just um, say, thank God, no one cast you as Annie. I don't know. I think you'd look good in a fetching ginger wig. I, I, I be, totally used to would. have lots of hair. I so, did. You know, I have never ginger and curly. But I've seen pictures of James. To be fair, I don't think Wendell Wallace is likely to be sporting a ginger perm. But no. No, it's unlikely, but it would, it would be odd. It would be interesting if she did. Um, one story you guys haven't mentioned, and I'm outraged about this, is the news that uh, Chris Cooper has been cast as Norman Osborn, yeah. aka the, the future Green Goblin. Maniacal laugh, maniacal, maniacal laugh. In uh, the Amazing Spider-Man Two, which is currently shooting. Yes. Uh, so what do, what do we think of this? I think I think this is good casting. I think the guy looks like my vision of apart from the hair Norman Osborn in the comics always has this really weird really almost cornrowy hair in a weird way and uh, he doesn't have that obviously but I, he does have that air of Osbornosity and I imagine he already has his own goblin glider yes I believe he does at home he go, he takes out out at weekends I, I've heard that yeah uh, but I have to say that yeah, is, this, is this Spider-Man trilogy going about this right way um, because it seems to me that he's he's in this movie but he won't be gobbling until maybe the third movie you've got to hope not because they've already lined up I think Rhino Paul Giamatti and um, Jamie Foxx's Electro, Electro yeah. for this movie and you've got two love interests two love interests with uh, Shailene Woody joining as Mary Jane Watson I just feel like it, you know there, there's a danger of sequelitis which is uh, characterised by the, the dread symptoms of overloading baddies and, and interest before you know it, you're characters. in Spider-Man 3. Yeah, this is the mistake well, they made on Spider-Man right. 3, so you think that they would be... Spider-Man 3, X-Men 3. I mean, if, it's, if it, they're yeah. pulling it forward to 2, we've got a problem. So hopefully they just set him up, mm-hmm. have that kind of ticking away in the background, and maybe we might be on something good. He's a phenomenal actor, though, Chris Cooper, and he incredibly versatile, so I think he's never going to be bad casting. In he is indeed. So he's uh, another uh, Oscar Manny. winner to join that cast. Obviously, Jamie Foxx has, uh, has an Oscar, so which is grand. Sally Field has Oscars. Uh, so it's shooting now. The, the word on the script is, is very good. People are saying it's uh, it's actually shaping up pretty nicely. Well, so we yeah. shall we shall see. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Phil, how can you be here though while filming is going on in New York? Shouldn't you be over there playing, this, playing Peter Parker? This, this is that you look exactly like Andrew Garfield. Just like Emma Stone. You, yeah. Yes, it's because you are Emma Stone. Yeah. Well, it's the magic of cinema, Chris. What can I tell you? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, it'd also be remiss of us not to mention the fact that the new issue of Empire is out this week. It's on sale now, in fact, and it is a belter. Uh, the cover feature is Iron Man 3, uh, a very comprehensive look at Iron Man 3. I flew out to LA a couple weeks ago. That's why I wasn't here a couple weeks ago. Ah, ah, spoiler. I just remembered that. Uh, to interview Robert Downey Jr., Shane Black, uh, Marvel's Kevin Feige, uh, the co-writer Drew Pierce, Gwyneth Paltrow, Don Cheadle, Sir Ben Kingsley, pretty much everybody, including Nicky Grip, and uh, you can read about that feature uh, in the new issue. It looks fantastic. I also saw 15 minutes of footage, and it looks pretty damned impressive. If the other 105 minutes is as good as the 15 minutes they showed us, then we're in for a treat. Uh, what else is in the issue, Phil? Take us through it. Well, 
We've got um, a no particular order. We've got a lovely piece on Fangoria, mm-hmm. the, um, the the fabled horror um, fanzine magazine, which I never read growing up. I was a big horror fan growing up, but my horror magazines growing up were The Dark Side and Fear. Well, I think it's the p- p- perfect opportunity, perfect entrance point to, it is. to a incredibly influential uh, magazine. We've got a big interview with Trey Parker and uh, Matt Stone, mm-hmm. the guys behind um, the, Book of the, Mormon, the Book of Mormon, which I saw on Monday, and obviously saw, South Park. And, yes. and yeah, of course, in South Park. Um, and then we've got a massive celebration of Danny Boyle, in which we've spoken to a lot of his previous collaborators and current collaborators um, to talk about trance and the man himself to talk mm-hmm. about trance and his work on the Oscars and his career to date. And uh, I think you mean Olympics. Uh, the Oscars. It's all the same. It's all the same. The athletic Oscars, otherwise known as the Olympics. Um, and last but not least, a big piece on the new Michael Winterbottom, Steve Coogan, or Coobottom, as they're now known, movie The Look of Love about Paul Raymond, the 60s and 70s entrepreneur stroke porn baron. Um, and we've spoken to the ladies of his film as well. Um, I wish I wouldn't say ladies in quite such a sleazy way. <laughs> but, well, it was uh, Tams and Edgerton. We also Imogen wish that film. Poots and Anna Friel. Um, we got together for a shoot at the box, which is on the site of the old um, Raymond Review Bar in Soho. Mm-hmm. So it's imbued with uh, the history of that particular time. Fantastic. That's not all. That is not all. There is much, much more in the issue as well, including a. Fantastic feature on Fast and Furious 6. Nick DeSemlin was on set a couple of times hanging out with his good friend The Rock. My good friend The Rock. That's a great feature. Is it? Is it, Phil? Yes, it is. Yeah. And Nick was just the man for it. I bet it is. <gasps> bet it is. He and his good friend The Rock. Good friend. They wouldn't. Rock would even recognise Nick if Nick dropped in on, from the ceiling. Didn't the Rock tweet um, Nick? Also, the yes, he did, James. <laughs> Shut up. Uh, we also have a uh, cracking horror preview. Looking ahead to the horror movies coming out this year, uh, we uh, have tons more in there, including set visits, uh, exclusive reports from the set of Jack Ryan, exclusive report from the uh, the set of Cuban Fury, Nick Frost's dance movie, uh, where I was on set on a, a multi-story car park. The glamour of this oh, job wow. is extraordinary. Uh, we also have exclusive interviews with James Bobin the director of The Muppets Again. We have a great report on J.J. Abrams getting the uh, Star Wars Episode 7 gig. Exclusive interviews with Adam McKay on Adam Anchorman 2, which is just about to start shooting. Hurrah! Funnily enough, in Atlanta and in New York, not the Wells Vagina. Um, we have stuff on uh, Louis Leterrier's heist flick, Now You See Me. Uh, Albert Brooks is a fantastic pint of milk. And we have, obviously, all the movie news and reviews you could possibly want. So that's available now. £3.99 and all good and evil news agents. You would be a fool not to buy it. A damned fool. A damned fool. Okay, time for our second interview. Uh, Paul Andrew Williams' song for Marion, a heart-wrenching tearjerker, starring Terence Stamp, formerly of this pod, and Vanessa Redgrave. Opened in cinemas last week, but uh, Williams, who switches tack as a director after the blood-soaked and intense The Cottage and London to Brighton, couldn't make it onto last week's show. We said, don't worry, all's not lost. Come on this week. Parking water back outside. Come on, have a good old natter. So he did, and we did, and then he got a parking ticket. Um... Yeah, sorry about that. Anyway, he was talking to me and Phil. Uh, we're delighted to be joined in the pod booth by Paul Andrew Williams, the director of Song for Marion, which opened last week. So were you on tenterhooks over the weekend, watching figures come in, watching tweets come in? Um, yeah, I, I tweeted. I was on Twitter quite a lot to the point where, you know, my girlfriend said, you know, after this weekend, I think we need to have a chat. <laughs> because it's, you know... You tweet me. Yeah, because I said... 
no, as I typed in my 140 uh, characters to her. No, um, just because, you know, just because I was keen to see what happened. I also played football and my brother was over here with it, you know, so it was kind of a hectic weekend. But you like to, I think you like to always know either way if it's, you know, if it's tanking or rising or whatever, just so it then puts mm. your mind at ease a little bit. I've been uh, I've been reading a lot of those tweets uh, over the weekend, and it seems to me that you're probably responsible for about thirty to forty percent of the tears cried in the UK over the last three or four days. Uh, How yeah. do you feel about that, you monster? <laughs> well, those uh, shares in Kleenex, which we took out prior to <laughs> now, uh, you know, listen. If people get moved by the film, you know, that's obviously great. Um, if they leave the film and hang themselves then that is terrible mm -hmm. but if they leave the films and you know you know we've had people say to us oh I just wanted to go I had to go and speak to my dad I had to go and speak to you know phone up my family in Australia mm -hmm. all this sort of stuff then that's that's positive you know and we're talking about a film about normal people with respect to everyone for normal people do you know mm -hmm. what I mean it's not something that you need to go in and really dissect it's just something that hopefully if it moves you then that's not a bad thing and, and people sometimes think they've been if they're moved and if they you know shed a tear or whatever that they have been massively manipulated by this tear jerking weepy and predictable director who's trying to squeeze every sentimental moment out of it well only what you know that if i've squeezed a sentimental moment out of you then surely that film has worked at that particular point anyway mm. yeah squeeze us squeeze yeah squeeze us <laughs> do it um the great Terence Stamp. What a Who, wanker! <laughs> You've answered my question. Um, no, no, I wasn't going to ask that. He's not. Um, he's he not. sat in that very chair last year. In, fa in fact, he was on. He, he had just come back from doing ADR with you, I think. Yeah, no, we've been doing right. it that day. I'm going to this place at uh, Empire Magazine to do a, a podcast. Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he told me it was Zod. Good. Zodcast, we tried to. Did you say it? Tried to, no, well, no, we no. forgot. We forgot. <laughs> we didn't we forget. Forgot. I think we decided discretion. Discretion was better for the Yeah. <laughs> but he um, he talked us through in in great detail his um, his his risotto recipe. He's a very keen cook, isn't he? Did you get any? Word? No. No, no, really. I got no, what? Did I get any food from him? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he used to come in with a, a plate of different recipes every day. Paul, you try this and then follow this with a small uh, glass of Chardonnay and you'll be fine. No, I mean, it was. I meant the cookbook. His cookbook. No, He's... to be honest, everyone got presents at the end of the film. All the other actors gave each other presents, but the director didn't get shit. Oh, <laughs> I didn't get anything. Um,. You know, Terence is he's probably the healthiest man you'll ever meet. I mean, he's 74. He, on the first day I saw him in Durham, I went up to his apartment. I was like, you know, how you doing? And he showed me these press-up things, you know, these press-up uh, things that you put on the floor and they twist. And, yeah. and he did one. And then he said, go on, have a go. And I couldn't do one. And he was literally <laughs> standing over me going, come on, come on, do it. You know, because, and I was so feeble. Uh, it was the most it was very embarrassing but he was but so with food and everything diet you know he's very careful what he does and what he doesn't do and you know how much rest he takes and he's actually the way he breathes and everything the guy you know it's amazing to think that he he worked with William Wyler you work with it there's a common thread one one step removed from sort of Hollywood's yeah. golden age he said that when he was talking about being on the collector with Wyler that he was he was categoric with Wyler from the beginning that he was a one 
two take guy. You're <laughs> you're not a seventy eighty take guy. But how was that? Okay, basically, this is the truth. When I first met him, he said, I only do one take, Paul, one take. Uh, and I, of course, on the first meeting, I'm like, of course, yeah, no, no problem. And then I went home going, Keenan wants to do one take, what the... So then I started to panic and then I had a few more meetings and then I, and once he'd relaxed a bit more around me, I said, you know, if you don't get it right, Terrence, we're going to go again and we're going to go again until he gets, until it's right. Of course, darling, is of course. <laughs> you know, so... The thing is, is in all honesty, usually the first and second takes he did were always the best. There'd be times then we'd have to go again for lots of other reasons that not necessarily him. Um, but when he says the first take, the first take is often the best one for him. But sometimes it's the second take, sometimes it's the third take. Um, but we did, it wasn't like, can we, can we please go again, please? Please, please, Terence. Just one more time, please. We didn't get any sound. No, no, nope. there was no film in it. Oh, but we need it. No, he did go again. Okay. And um, but the first takes were usually first and second were usually the best. That's well, you were talking before about this idea of the this term, the grey pound, which seems to have become a bit prevalent in the light of perhaps films like Marigold Hotel and that kind of thing, and that that it isn't a conscious decision is not where you start the filmmaking process looking for no. an audience otherwise you end up in the, in, in the completely the wrong place well we wrote I wrote the film six years ago that's when the first idea came mm. and you know where was the grey pound then it was like the slightly you know brown grey pound <laughs> yeah, it was <laughs> grey pound you know um, I wrote it a long time ago and then we filmed it almost two years ago you know a year and a half ago perhaps and um, so the thing is, is because out there in the world there was the best exotic Marigold Hotel and then Quartet and then that people automatically go, oh, well then he's got oh, the bandwagon. He's on now trying to... It's trying just to if you steal. made the film in six yeah. weeks. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and that's from critics, from papers, from newspapers, people with educations writing this down <laughs> as if they are... As if they, I'm like, are you really that dumb that we've just, oh, let's do that and we can yeah. send it out there. You know, it's been around for a while. And um, no, I never have an. I, I, I never think about the audience. <laughs> all my films are shit. No, but I never think about the audience at all. Screw them. No, I always just try and write the story, and then hopefully some people will go and see it, and some people will yeah. like it. But you know, if you start thinking about this is the audience I'm going to make it for, and they're going to love it, then it's a bit like, well, you know, I don't know what an audience wants. All I know what is what I hope people will I can show if you like mm. I'm intrigued by the genesis of this movie and uh, having started it six years ago um, just before you've been making The Cottage is that, is that yeah correct? basically I got it just after London to Brighton came out and mm. you know and the whole world was like oh the genius of Paul Andrew I'm like mate don't give me that crap I'm you know I just you know I sit at home all day in my pants there's no way you could say that I didn't you know, it was just, it, we made the film and it just happened to be something that was picked up, you know, very positively by everyone. Anyway, I got, I had pitched it to the BBC very quickly and they offered to pay me. And at this point, I still had uh, no money. So I was still practically on the dole when London to Brighton had come out. And I'm like, yeah, great. So I started writing it and people started to get interested. Then we start, you know, we went off and shot the cottage. Um, purely because that was the most ready to shoot and people were saying we'll make what do you want to make what do you want to make and I'm like well this is ready and they're like okay we'll do it and rather than any sort of direct choice <clears throat> and um, you know it, I saw I wrote it about my granddad and what would make my granddad sort of do this kind of thing and then did the cottage and then by the time I got back 
the people who were originally involved with the script sort of were having a bit of a, a panic out of what kind of actors would be able to get, how much the budget would be. So then, while that was still in a massive stalling element, I made Cherish Your Lane. Mm. And then we came out of that, and then more people had started to get back interested in Song for Marion, and we have to do this, we have to do this, and then the momentum just picked up and picked up. So we just carried on going, and E1, the distributor, had just been amazing in terms of their faith that they've had mm. in it, because they picked up a film that had been in Turnaround. Yeah. And, you know, Turnaround is often, you know, the void where a film goes and never comes back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so... But, but the idea, you say you wrote it... Uh, not about your granddad necessarily, but inspired by your grandfather. So the the, the idea of uh, OIPs and singing and the competition, where did that uh, element come that from? That sort of came from, um, my. just saw my uh, my girlfriend at the time was watching a programme, I was in the kitchen, and she kept going, Bob, come and see it, come and see this. And she was watching Younger Heart, and I was like, I'm busy, I'm busy. And then I went up and caught uh, like the last Coldplay song, and she was just in bits, and I was like, okay. And then sort of once I'd seen it and then a few weeks later when I'd sort of thought about my granddad I said right I can't watch this now because if I watch it so I haven't seen it yet the whole thing I sort of if I watch it then people will obviously assume all these things and I'm like well the best thing is to just not watch it so that when anyone says what did you think of it has mm. it inspired you I'm like no it hasn't because I haven't seen it <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah and that was sort of the idea of where of, and where it came from mm-hmm. the fascinating thing about the film as well is that Marion you know, Vanessa Redgrave is so full of life and fatality as well uh, was she like that on, on set all the, all the, all the way <laughs> basically she would uh, always spend a good three or four minutes uh, before every take in a private room <laughs> with a mirror and a straw <laughs> um, no she was actually obviously she's not she doesn't do that um, she doesn't that's, that's just that's, yeah, that's very, very clear, that very clear. <clears throat> um, much more of a meth <laughs> kind of actress she was uh, what was really brilliant is that she you know you'd think that she was oh man you're not doing it right you're not going to do it you know I don't understand you know what her motivation was at times and you realise that like a lot of the time we thought she was ill we were really sort of questioning if she was okay and then you're like actually no she's she's just doing that for the role and you're sort of like gosh she's good you know she's good because you know she's incredibly she's so clever um, and good at working out you as a, as a person and good at working out the scene and also you know doing things that you when you think they're doing nothing you think they're getting it wrong and then you watch it back and you're like actually no you know she's nailed it she's you know she's and her and Terence didn't meet each other until they walked onto the set for the first day they'd never met before they had met they'd done a play they did a play yeah. oh, they yeah. just didn't speak to each other for like 30 years and I'm like well should we not meet <laughs> no uh, don't you want to meet and talk about it no it's fine and uh, so they turn up and then they're like Rock and roll, well, so they? the chemistry between Arthur and Marion was was instant. Yeah, or they're fantastic actors. It could be that as well. It you know, they well. and the fact is, is they are. They have, you know, Terence does say this in a lot of interviews about how uh, I said to him, you know, you and Vanessa Nader, well, we had a hundred years of experience. You know, and I'm like, yeah, you do. They did. Mm. Yeah, really uh, Grant Paul, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, guys. Very, very, it's very, very. I'm very grateful. Cheers. Thanks for coming. 
Okay, that's uh, Paul Andrew Williams there. Song from Marion is still in cinemas now. And now we come to the portion of the show that helps you decide what to do this weekend with the money you've left over after sending this cash to help pay off Paul Andrew Williams' parking ticket. Uh, it's the reviews section, namely. First up, we have Stoker, the English-language directorial debut of Park Chan-wook, the demented genius behind Old Boy, uh, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, and Lady Vengeance, to name but three. It's based on a script by Prison Breaks' Wentworth Miller. Yes, you read that right. Prison Breaks' Wentworth Miller who presumably yeah, he had wrote the script, script on, his, on his body yeah that's yeah, right there we go yeah. which made rewriting first jokes yeah it was re- rewriting process was quite painful on that one I'm, I imagine oh, anyway God. it stars Mia Fasikowska uh, Nicole Kidman and Matthew Good in a sweaty sinister tale of southern gothic and murder 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 so thoughts on this one uh, I like this a lot I mean it's, uh, it's an odd one um it's it's a nice it's a film that it's good to go in I think not having seen the trailer which I think is a little misleading uh, in what it's put it's, in what it sort of implies it will be um, and I can't really say more than that without actually spoiling the film but it's uh, it's a curious study of uh, the psychology of mentalists <laughs> that would be that, that would, would be, be that would be my synopsis that I would write in the back of the book. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, that's my interpretation Britain's most influential film <laughs> you heard it here first no I mean it's 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 brilliant uh, Vashikovska I think is the the best thing in this to be honest rather than Matthew Good I thought she was outstanding uh, really plays it very I well think, I think there, there, there isn't really a bad performance in yeah. it um, so that's, that, the, yeah that's the, set up a tell the setup is basically yeah. uh, Vashikovska plays uh, the daughter of a family um, her dad who's played in Flashbacks by Dermot Mulroney mm-hmm. has died um, oh, no. And her mother, played by Nicole Kidman, is not dealing terribly well. She's a bit fragile and sort of, you know, on edge, obviously, understandably. Um, And at the funeral, uh, an uncle she didn't know she had, Uncle Charlie, played by Matthew Good, turns up and sort of moves in with the family for an indeterminate period. And something is weird and bad and wrong and, and, yeah. Something is off, decidedly off. off. It's just there's a weird atmosphere that you can't quite pin down yeah. during the whole film and it starts to reveal itself as the, as the film plays out uh, but there's some fantastic scenes I mean there's the, the one in the trailer I think is really good with the pencil um, yeah yeah if you see the trailer that's mm. a very good sequence um, it yeah. looks gorgeous I mean it's a beautifully beautifully shot film uh, really really great performances from all involved and just the, that atmosphere as you say of just creep and dread the music's very good the as whole well. way through yeah, mm. is, um, yeah it just gets under your skin and kind of stays there the use of sound design if you saw Barbarian Sound Studio last year this is kind of that in action in a very clever way everything is heightened mm. and uh, the the, uh, the camera work um, the Dutch tilts that he uses yes canted angles canted angles and the creepiness of some of the t- I mean there's a bit with a pencil that you mentioned yeah and, and when she when she's sharp, sharpening it and cleaning it and mm. the noise it makes is but as you said because she has heightened senses so she, has, she, she yes. has very acute hearing and so the, the sound design is, is very clever and just the sound exactly of the shavings coming off the pencil it's quite it's quite Eek. upsetting mm. he's an amazing stylist director director park from that point of view Um, if people don't necessarily love the film it'd probably be because they're not embracing his his uh, his visual style and his um, kind of aesthetic perhaps it seems to be splitting people a lot this movie I thought it was deliciously dark and and wonderfully funny at times Mm, Um, very funny it's it's very very twisted film Um, I think the performance is great Uh, I think Matthew Good is fantastic as Uncle Charlie who is 
possibly the most sinister character of the year so far. He plays it wonderfully well. He's very well described by Ollie Richards in the Empire Review um, as, I think, someone who's on his way to the world's most sinister fashion shoot. <laughs> or he's just come back from the evening. Yeah. Um, he's that, very well turned out. He's, yeah, he's very well turned out. And, uh, yeah, he's just got this wonderful sense of creeping dread, which, which I really, really like. It's funny, that was a role that was originally earmarked for Colin Firth, wasn't it? The whole... The whole the cast were different at one point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So going through different iterations, but I can't. I almost can't really imagine Colin Firth in that role. Can you imagine Wentworth Miller playing that role? <laughs> no. Well, yeah, I where did say this come from? All Wentworth of them, Miller. All of them look good in a suit. So yeah. you know, in that sense, sure. Wentworth Miller, though, <laughs> he changed his name to him. for the screen on the screenplay, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, in order to get a sell because in case he wasn't taken seriously. And I think there's another writer who was brought on subsequently, but Wentworth Miller. Fair play to him. In case he wasn't taken seriously. He's come a long way from that Mariah Carey video. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, he has. Um, And we should probably mention the the debt this movie owes to Hitchcock. Yes, very much so. Yes, absolutely. Um, Should we elaborate on that? (laughs) 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 We just mentioned it. Um, Clearly, there's a Hitchcock inspiration across the board in in the way that he sets up the, the mystery, the central kind of mystique around it. But I think that the Hitchcock film it owes the most obvious debt to his Shadow of a Doubt, with Joseph Cotton's character being kind of informing the Matthew Good. They're very different performances. Um, Good is perhaps a little suave and less, more menacing in a certain way. Mm. Reminded um, me of Rebecca weirdly as well, just in terms of the pace and the way it kind of built uh, towards the end. It's, mm. it's, it's sort of a lot of scenes where not much mm. happening happens but there's a sort of growing sense of unease and then this kind of I think Hitchcock has a word that's obviously thrown around an awful lot and uh, it's a it's a five that's very difficult to attain and I'm glad this film actually succeeds for me it feels very yeah. Hitchcocky. Um and there's another film coming up in a couple of weeks time uh, Steven Soderbergh's Side Effects which is also very, very much Hitchcocky. So, yeah. uh, so it's good to see that people still can aim for that and hit it uh, we gave Stoker five stars <gasps> Uh, if you're on the toilet, get off now and go and see Stoker. If the cinema's closed, then just wait. Okay, so next up we have Broken City, in which Mr. Wahlberg, who was, of course, earlier in the pod, his New York private eye gets involved in a sinister conspiracy involving Russell Crowe's mayor. Mark, if you're listening, though, you might want to have Ted cover your ears now because this isn't as successful an enterprise as we might have wanted it to be. Am I right in thinking this? Yes. Film? Yes, you're right in thinking that it's not as successful as it wants it to be. Yes, you're right. It's not. Um, I. This is the most... It's like it's 1994 all over again watching this film. It's, it takes you back to those really humdrum kind of mid-90s thrillers. With David Caruso. I wasn't going to mention the David Kiss of Death. Kiss of Death. Absolute Jade. Power. The general, oh, Absolute Power. I love Absolute Power. It's not as good as Absolute <laughs> no! Power. No! Sorry. The General's Daughter. It's about on that level. Oh, no! It, it's a conspiracy. I think it's... it's Touchstones are the 70s thrillers of, you know, the LeMay, etc. Um, it's set in New York. Mark Wahlberg, so he plays Billy Taggart, who's an ex-cop with a dark history, who's now a private private eye. Um, he's brought in by this charismatic New York mayor, played by Russell Crowe, and given the job of basically uh, staking out his wife, Catherine Zeta-Jones, yeah. because he believes that she's having an affair. Now, obviously, bearing in mind the, the stuff about the 70s conspiracy thrillers, there's a conspiracy at work, and it involves... Um, 
It involves Russell Crowe. It involves some shady dealings. It involves Barry Pepper as his mayoral opponent. Barry Ooh. Pepper's mullet is involved. <laughs> Heavenly. Um, yeah. is, this, some, is this a period movie then? <laughs> it feels like a period movie. It's not. It's, it's very not, much no. set now. Okay. But as I say, it wants to be a Sidney LeMay, Frankenheimer type conspiracy what thriller. Doesn't it? it doesn't make that because the, the script isn't strong enough. The, there's a lot of macho dialogue. Some of it's actually really funny. There's a great line where, where um, part of... <laughs> Part of Wahlberg's, say. part of Wahlberg's job is to uh, is to chase up the money that he's owed as a peer, as a PI, and uh, one of the one of his clients tells him that he's going to get the money in February. Never you worry. <laughs> Never you worry. Never you worry. Never, Never you worry. Um, and that's the high point. Well, that is literally the high point. It wants to be Chinatown, and it's not even City Hall. Really is no. I think that's that's a good. That's a yeah. I think you put your finger on it there. Yeah. It's it doesn't have. We've been here before. We've seen it done a lot better. I mean, to be fair, Wahlberg I thought was perfectly serviceable. He plays it very well. Um, you know, Russell Crowe does fat and grubbed very well. I um, I don't know. I'm a sucker for movies like this, so I'm I'm going to go in with an open mind. But uh, this is directed by Alan Hughes. Who is one half of the Hughes brothers? He is, uh, and uh, this is they, first split film, this first solo mm. film. So he's he's without Albert, who was meant to be directing that Jerry Butler film Motor City, but that's gone by the wayside. So I hope the brothers haven't fallen out. I uh, think I've met them before. They're they're very personable and likable guys. Um, but their, their movies have always been quite stylish. Is this stylish? Yeah, but you know, or, or is Alan the one who worked with the actors? <laughs> I, I don't think it's wildly stylish. It's, it, There's a sequence, of the, the, the the sort of. The drunken sequence is very stylized, and I actually quite enjoyed that bit. But yeah. that is only about there's, three minutes. There's of film. some there's some amazing things in this film that are just so weird. There's one moment where where Warburg's girlfriend wants to be an actress, and I don't know why they have this subplot because it's just beyond distracting and ridiculous. And she's in. I'm not sure she wants. To, she actually is an actress. She, yeah, but she wants film. to be. A, she wants yeah. to be a you know a Hollywood actress. And yeah. and and Warburg's obviously kind of channeling the blue collar guy that thinks actors are a little bit you know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he goes and watches a screening of this film within the film, which you, I can't even describe. It's how the awful worst it is. thing in the world. It's I mean, I think it's intentionally bad, but I mean, but it's really unspeakably dreadful. When someone was putting the script together, but they accidentally photocopied pages from the entourage of the movie into, into the script. It's, it's really, really yeah. It's I don't think it's meant to be quite that meta. I mean, he, the whole point is that he's he's watching this premiere. It's his girlfriend. He's this very blue collar, very sort of very so speaks with a fist kind of guy. She is, um, to put it delicately, being. I believe Mark Wahlberg started us being ploughed from behind by the guy who plays Alex Karev in Grey's Anatomy. Um, and it's accompanied by some pretty dreadful dialogue. Uh, and it's just, it feels wrong. It just feels wrong in every level. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's like if the rest of the film was Chinatown, then you could kind of forgive that. But yeah. it, there's no obvious. It's like well, it's, it's, supposed to be, it's supposed to be contributing to his, uh, his state of mind, isn't it? I like to find yeah, anybody to come up with great dialogue when they're being ploughed from behind, quite frankly. <laughs> by, your mind's, by Dr. Your mind. from Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> it's yeah. on other things at that point. Let's, um, whether let's, you're the ploughy or the plower. <laughs> let's move on, I think, It's all going to <laughs> is it stylish was the original question and he, I, <laughs> somehow we ended up here uh, two stars two stars it's, for Brooklyn City it's, yeah it has moments of style okay. two stars though two stars uh, currently in cinemas at the moment it opened on Wednesday is Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters uh, former US number one box office hit uh, in which Jeremy Renner and not sadly Jeremy Renier uh, and Gemma Arterton uh, play all grown up versions of the famous fairy tale siblings now hunting witches and biting off more than they can chew this is the uh, the first movie for Tommy Furcola, the uh, the director of Dead Snow, since Dead Snow. So, thoughts on this one, Helen? 
Hello. Well, uh, it had some issues. I mean, it was delayed for, what, a year um, by by the studios, and it does feel like something that's been kind of picked over and taken apart and reassembled and taken apart and reassembled ever since. I didn't have a major problem with uh, Renner and Arshton themselves as the siblings. The idea is that they're basically both traumatised by what happened to them as kids and dealing with it in different ways. She keeps wanting to talk about it. He keeps not. Oh, my goodness, the differences between men and women, eh? (laughs) Crazy. Um, But it's more that the... the plot itself didn't necessarily kind of take off the pacing felt off um, but all you see in any of the action scenes and there are many is the two of these guys getting you know their behinds handed to them by all of these witches that they fight and yet somehow always managing in the last moment to win which just I get that they were going for a kind of Indiana Jones feel it didn't really particularly work for me um, and you know yeah it, it kind of felt like there could have been something more there that is not actually there mm. on the screen now that we see I mean there was a real commitment to kind of practical effects which was quite cool is there a house yeah. made of sweets um, I was about to ask there that. is a house made of sweets yes yep. um, house, yeah. which gives somebody diabetes you know it's I mean it's, it's <laughs> it kind of, does, it it's does. Some really, there's some really interesting ideas and it really like quite almost quite fun concepts but it, it kind of fell yeah. down between wanting to be funny and wanting to yeah. be action packed and serious yeah. and, and Gritty. It's produced by Adam McKay and Will Ferrell. Um, and Who it comes are, from the Gary Sanchez uh, production company. They're actually witches at one point in the in that final they? They are, yeah. scene. Yeah. They're unrecognisable, but they're there. But I recognised them still, well, which is weird. Yeah. But um, yeah, it, it's a strange one. And yes, uh, the Gingerbread House does indeed give uh, Hansel... Uh, a diabetes type uh, wow. condition so he has to constantly uh, often inconveniently unco- during battles as well no, have to suddenly take some medicine Does, in order did to stop he eat the gingerbread dying. house yes he was forced to eat the gingerbread house to fatten him up you see as, yeah. a, ch- as a kid so the witch could eat him but still he, he couldn't have consumed much more sugar than I have in the last 24 hours so <laughs> this is Dread by the man the man that made Dead Snow right Yes, yes, please, 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 please tell me that the tagline is Einstein diabetes. Hey, no, sadly, it's not. <laughs> that would have been amazing. Damn, it, yeah, it would have been amazing. So, what's the what's the? They just kind of roam the forest. Does the, it I, the idea there's a plot um, such as it is in which they uh, they are they're brought to this village, which is suffering an, an unusual amount of witch attacks and an unusual amount and of children are being snatched. Child abductions. Uh, yeah, and uh, they try and solve this mystery, which revolves around Famke Janssen's uh, head witch and some utter guff about a blood moon or something like that I can't even remember the, the plot of this film no, but wasn't she an actress in uh, Terminator Goldeneye yes <laughs> she was, oh, moon, very good <laughs> moon go. blood good very good um, <laughs> yes. and uh, they, they have to stop but there's a big meeting up with the witches at some point and you know but it is often incoherent it does feel like Helen said like it has been snipped and prodded and poked around and there, there are scenes that just end utterly incoherently yeah and then pick up again the next day but there are some nice moments in it I quite like the the easy chemistry between Gemma Arterton and uh, Jeremy Renier yeah. and uh, and uh, as you said the uh, the commitment to prosthetic effects and gore there's a lot of gore in this a one a lot of gore a lot of gore in this one mm. and, um, uh, is, is commendable and there's a fantastic uh, troll called Edward and I thought it was CG initially and it's not CG uh, it's a kind of weird I'm twisted love interest slash friend for uh, Gemma Arterton Edward the troll I thought there was going to be a revelation involving that 
control. So did I. And it's it's one of those films we think there's going to be a lot of revelations coming here. They've yeah. set this up for a reason. They've set this up and they haven't. And it's going to relate back to that thing. That yes. you, and you'll see actually when you see yeah. the film, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. My favourite thing about the script um, is that at the last uh, hour, the very last minute, they, they find something that helps them, a, a book, mm. which is the, a huge MacGuffin. And they, they just go, oh, we're going to be powerless to defeat these witches. Oh, luckily we found this book, which helps us defeat the witches. And it's just very, very lazy screenwriting. But uh, it's okay. We gave it two. two. Two stars. That's about right, I'd say. Uh, it's a shame because there, there was definite promise here. Uh, okay, and the financial meltdown movies uh, just keep on coming. Uh, the latest one this week is Arbitrage or Arbitrage, uh, starring Richard Gere or Garay. As a financial powerhouse, his illegal fiddlings threaten to catch up with him and ruin his life. Uh, very, very brief thoughts on this one, Phil. Um, it's really terrific Fantastic. and well worth watching. If you saw Oscar nominated um, for financial thriller Margin Call in 2011 uh, and enjoyed it, which you should have done because it's great this mm. is a kind of along similar lines um, Richard Gere is really really good as a hedge fund manager who's fallen upon very serious problems there's a murder there's a police investigation mm-hmm. there's a long suffering wife there's a lot of the sort of tropes but it, it kind of it transcends all those things to be a really fascinating insight into this particular world of high finance and uh, it's fascinating mm. and Gears charisma is there it's a great role for him it's not uh, it's not uh, an, an easily likable protagonist is he no which I think is is the, you know to the film's credit really um, he's not Gordon Gecko but he's uh, <laughs> he's a man of his time and um, you know he's he's understandable if not sympathetic um, and he gives the film some serious kind of Oomph. Oomph. Fantastic. Aye. Four stars. Four stars for arbitrage or arbitrage. Uh, if you want to throw your money elsewhere this week, uh, you can. apparently it is arbitrage. Arbitrage. Yeah. Arbitrage. Yeah. yeah. So uh, You could go for the... Well, that's the way Danny Lee pronounced it in film 2013 last night. It was for Did he? Grant, he went arbitrage. So, oh. so that, I'm taking it from Danny. Yeah. Uh, you could go for the Nicholas Sparks adaptation, Safe Haven. Helen, what do we think of this one? Uh, it's like every other Nicholas Sparks adaptation until <laughs> until the last half hour where it throws a couple of curveballs at you. Now, admittedly, I saw them both coming and I can't even predict who done it in a Miss Marple mystery. However, um, they are curveballs that you're like, no, he's not going to do that, is he? Is he? Oh my goodness, he totally did. Which is, is actually entertaining. And I have to say, Julianne Huff and uh, Josh Duhamel are actually really likable they're they're a likable couple in it but you know it's all the usual stuff uh small town uh southern mm. u.s coastal idyll basically kisses in the rain oh. the whole thing letters as well somebody dies at the end oh, letters no. yeah yeah it's basically it's all the nicholas sparks ingredients just you know in a slightly different mix because <laughs> you just put it into a giant tombola and just I think so yeah but as i say there are a couple of things this time that you're a bit like what manatees there are an unusual amount of manatees in it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. Uh, what did we give that? We gave it three. Also out this week, there's Barry Levinson's found footage horror film, The Bay, which we gave three stars to. And there's also Caesar Must Die. That's that's about uh, prisoners, Italian prisoners, putting on a production of Julius Caesar. That also got three stars. Three stars in that. And that. So there's no shortage of options this week, you'd be glad to know. Uh, that's it for this week. Join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by the likes of my hero, Living Legend, the director of the Evil Dead trilogy and Spider-Man trilogy and Drag Me to Hell and all those great films. Sam Raimi and Zach Braff from All the Great and Powerful. And Tim Roth will drop by to talk about his new movie, Broken which is presumably a prequel to Broken City. Until then, it's goodbye from Helen. Goodbye. Goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. Goodbye from James. Goodbye. And goodbye from me. Bye. 